I think the introduction to the second reading, St. Paul's words, are, are kind of the best. You know, I wish you all to be free from anxieties. <laughs> That's kind of how he starts out that letter. And then he sort of goes into some of these things that we really know St. Paul for, these sort of discourses on the idea of what it's like to be a single man and then what it's like to be married and everything. And then, of course, he makes, you say, he makes it sound like, oh, yeah, you definitely want to be single. That's kind of how St. Paul sort of writes in a way. But, but really what he's kind of describing, describing is kind of an important truth in our faith. One of the things he's trying to explain is that, you know, in the end, we all want to be in heaven with God. And so in his life, he's consecrated to God similarly to the way that I am as a priest. And so the things that he worries about he worries about God primarily in his life. He's taken that as his primary worry, his primary preoccupation in his life. And so that's one of the important distinctions that St. Paul is really making there. And so naturally, though, in a marriage, rightfully so, you would be concerned about your spouse and you would be concerned about your children and your family. But it's like because you have to be concerned for them, you can't just spend all of your time you know, here in church praying or doing things of the Lord. Uh, and one of those things we talk about is, is states in life in the church. So we all have to live our appropriate state in life. So if you were to walk in here at some weird time of the day and see Father Carey and I praying or something like that, hopefully that shouldn't surprise you. Hopefully you should be pleased by that, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but if you have five children and you're in church like eight hours a day praying, it's just like you might be trying to avoid something, not be trying to get closer to God. You know, so that's the important thing about living our appropriate state in life. And so Paul, he makes his primary preoccupation God, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to pray. That's one of the important things that he talks about there. But naturally, we all have some different anxieties, but everybody's life should be ultimately still pointing towards God. So some of us are in the situation where we do that, like I said, here on earth already by not getting married. But marriage is a prefigurement of what we have with God in heaven. God is married to his church. I am married to his church. And so it's important to realize that the reflection of marriage is a reflection of what we want with Christ and how he loves the church. That's a really important thing that we realize, that everything that we should be doing in our life should be something that is a foreshadowing of us leading towards a closer life with God in heaven. And to do that, the only way that you can really do that is you actually have to submit in your life. Submission is a part of our life. And a lot of people push really hard back against that. You know, this is proper submission to proper things, though, you know, I'll, I'll say. And so the important thing about that is we also know from St. Paul, one of everybody's least favorite passages is when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. But, but you've heard me say this before. All you need to do is continue reading in context to find out what Paul is really talking about there. He says, wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives 
like Christ loved his church and died for the church. You know, that's the important thing that we realize, that the love that a husband loves his wife with is a completely sacrificial love. One that, if it would require his life, he would give it. That's the kind of love that we're talking about there. And so even for my life, you know, there is a submission. You know, it's just like, I'm just not like a priestly bachelor, <laughs> you know, but it's like those of you who have been to uh, an ordination before know that there's two extremely humbling gestures that you go through during the ordination rite. The first one is you lie prostrate on the ground. It's the weakest position and the lowest position that you could possibly take as a human being. So before God and before the people of God, you lie face down on the ground. And then you kneel before your bishop. You kneel before your bishop, and then you put your hands out folded. And then he takes his hands and he puts them around your hands. A real, a real submission kind of thing. It's just like, He's sitting above you, and his hands are around your hands. And then he says these words, Do you promise obedience to me and to my successors? And if any of you know Archbishop Sample, you can't see this, but he looks at you like laser beams are in his eye. Do you promise obedience to me and my successors? And you're like, I do. And so it's a very profound moment. It was a profound moment in my life. But the important thing that it also points to is what we hear about in the gospel is authority. Do you promise obedience to me and my successors? I know Archbishop Sample really well, and we also get along really well, but I don't know who our next Archbishop is going to be. So that doesn't necessarily mean that I just am obedient to the guy that I get along well with. There might be another bishop that comes along, and for some reason we don't get along too well, but guess what? I promised obedience to Archbishop Sample, and to whoever succeeds him. And so that's an important thing that we realize in our life. And you might remember this from what it felt like the day you were at the altar and you were saying your vows to each other, for those of you that are married, and what it feels like, I don't know, 35 years later. It feels kind of different submitting in that way. And there's a constant development of that. But one of the important things is that we submit to the proper authority. We submit to the way and the truth and the life itself. That's what we hear in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And one of the greatest dangers right now in society, but one of the greatest dangers that has ever existed throughout all of history, is the idea that truth is just like a philosophical concept or an idea or, or something that's individualized. That's completely false. The truth is someone. It is not just something like an idea or a philosophy. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It flows from his very person, from the fact that he has authority. And that's what we see in the gospel. The amazing thing in the gospel is that people were absolutely astounded that Jesus was speaking as if he was the source. It says in the gospel, he's, he spoke not like the scribes. So he didn't talk like he was teaching the information. He was speaking as if he was the information, because he was. It was the people that actually had the ability to hear Jesus himself preach 
had the privilege of hearing the truth itself speak directly to them. It must have been an amazing thing, and it was, because we hear the testimony in the gospel that people were astounded. It's like, who is this man that speaks as if he is the source himself? And we remember that. We hear from Deuteronomy today, and Deuteronomy would remind us a lot about Moses. How does God originally appear to Moses? Moses prostrates himself on the ground, takes his shoes off before the Lord, and then when he asks his name, he says, I am who am. He's describing that he's actually being itself. So God is the source. Jesus Christ is the source. And the amazing part about this gospel is who recognizes that first? A demon recognizes it first. The demon sees Jesus and says, we know who you are, Holy One of God. And so there, there's a couple movies where this is kind of illustrated, and they're sort of, they generally tend to quote from other things that are in literature, but most people know them because they saw the movie, right? So, so this is it. So there's the movie, The Usual Suspects, and there's a line that Kevin Spacey says in that movie, and he says, the greatest trick that the devil, devil ever pulled is convincing the world that he does not exist. You know, what does that mean? It means that out in the world, there is the reality of the devil, fallen, fallen angels, demonic things that are out, actually out in the world. But the devil, who is commonly called the father of lies, what would be the best way that he could possibly operate in the world? Is if people didn't believe that he was real. Because he can continue doing his thing, he can continue influencing people in a negative way, but he's got everybody convinced that he's not a real thing. And so he can operate freely under that. But when there's people who believe in his existence and have a good, healthy fear of evil, then they actually consciously walk away from it. There's another movie called um, Constantine with Keanu Reeves. This is just like a crazy action movie, and it's got like weird demonic possession things. Strange movie, but some of you may have seen it. There's another scene in that movie where a woman says, um, I don't believe in the devil. And Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves responds, and he said, you should. He believes in you. It's an important, important distinction to make. But Padre Pio said those very same words when somebody was expressing his doubt in God. He said, I don't believe in God. And then Padre Pio responded, he believes in you. It's extremely important that we understand those distinctions, that even the devil himself, even demonic spirits, recognize that God is the way, the truth, and the life. But what separates them from him is they've rejected him knowingly. They know who he is, and they willingly walk away from him. You've heard me say before, St. Thomas Aquinas' definition of love is willing the good of the other. Willing the good of the other. God first has to love his people. He has to love us first. And then we return that love back to him. And like I was saying, so the focus of my life is that as much as it possibly can be right now. So 
I don't have the anxieties of a wife or a family, but you guys are kind of my anxieties. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, I worry about you. I pray for you. But remember, we are one body in Christ. So my pri primary preoccupation is Christ and his church, and we're all bound together in one. But remember, in your marriages, especially those of you who have children, you know, you realize this, that willing the good of the other, one of the best examples for that is being a parent. Because you think, and I always use this example because I think it's just kind of true, right? You know, kids wake up in the morning sometimes and they might be like, Mom, Dad, could I have a pixie stick for breakfast? You know, like in, for those of you who don't remember pixie sticks, pixie sticks are paper straws that are filled with pure sugar and food coloring, right? Mom, can I have a pixie stick for breakfast? Uh, no, you cannot. You're going to have this thing for breakfast because it's way better for you. That's like a perfect example of willing the good of your child. And we have to do that in marriages and in friendships. But, but even those of you who have lost your spouses, you might get a taste or an understanding of what it's like if you've decided not to remarry and you're, and you're a religious person, a faithful person, what it's like when God becomes your primary preoccupation. But that's the goal of all of us. So whether we live it right now in the unique case of me or Father Kerry or in the religious life, or your, your marriage is this prefigurement of what's to come. Either way, we are in preparation for this one thing. And remember, as I said with love, the thing that we need to remember is that before Jesus enters into time and comes down here to earth, he's eternally with the Father in heaven. That is why we believe in a Trinitarian God, and that's the only way it would work. Because the God of love, the Father loves the Son, and the Son returns his love to the Father. That love is the Holy Spirit itself. It doesn't work any other way because you need a lover and a beloved. And so God first loves us, and then we could turn, return that love to him. And in your marriages and relationships, that is a reminder of that very thing, that you are loved, and that you also love. And that love goes back and forth between the two of you by willing each other's ultimate good. And what is the ultimate good? The number one ultimate good to wish for your spouse or for any human being on this earth, that they be in heaven with God. God bless you all today.